I remember the day we opened the Dixon Ministry Center. That was my project. The faculty in the music department put me in as chair to get it done. I remember saying, guys, I may use up all my political capital trying to get this done. And Mike DeKerchy had the most classic comment. He said, so? <laughs> you know, they wanted that building. There was so much pent-up need. Welcome to Cedarville Stories, a podcast sharing meaningful stories of people impacted by relationships and experiences at Cedarville University. Cedarville Stories is brought to you by Cedarville University, where student lives are transformed through excellent education and intentional discipleship in submission to biblical authority. Continue listening to hear the rest of today's story. Now here's your host, Mark Weinstein. Joining me on the podcast is Dr. Chuck Clevenger, retired professor of piano at Cedarville University. Chuck, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here. You worked at Cedarville 33 years. Um, do you have to enjoy, one, teaching, bringing creativity to the classroom and students? Hmm. What were the real key factors for you to really spend your life teaching here at Cedarville? Students first. Um, I don't really teach students. I make disciples. That's, that's a little deeper. It's a lot deeper. It's, a, it's, a, it's an eternal intent. Uh, and along the way, they're going to learn music or art or whatever it is we were, you know, whatever the subject matter was. But I want them to get it, you know, like they were my own children and I was trying to help them understand the world. That's really what motivated me. Um, I remember a quote from C.S. Lewis. I'm, I'm going to misquote him. But basically he said, you know, once I realized that the Lord had something for me to do, uh, obviously the first place you look is, what have I got? to offer. And um, he said something that resonated with me so well. He said, I looked around and it seemed that in the area of history and theology and, and intellectual things, that's where my training was. And that part of the line also seemed the thinnest. He was using a military metaphor. And he said, so I went there uh, and plugged in. And that's what I did. Um, I think in American culture, and in evangelical culture, which is a subset of American culture, um, we're kind of shallow when it comes to the fine arts, but that was where my training was. So I knew I needed to do something in the fine arts with Christian young people. And, and my goal has been to train a generation of people who actually know what they're talking about. Who, who know what they're consuming, if they're consuming media or, you know, music or whatever it is. So when you talk about students first. Yeah. Okay. And do, do you think about your career. Do any students' names come to mind like, ah, uh, they really got it or they really excelled? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to be clever. Actually, a couple thousand, you know, and that's, that's so deeply gratifying now at the end of a career to look back and say, I actually did that thing. I actually said to a couple thousand people, open your head and your heart, and I will pour in the best I've got. And let me show you how this works beautifully with being a believer yeah, and how God intended for us to be all we could be. And if this is your chosen field, mm -hmm. uh, man, let's not be mediocre, you know. 
So the other part of this, you were saying, you know, is it performance? Is it students? You know, you had better be good at what you're doing. Everybody, I think, who studied the Scripture little knows about the cultural mandate in Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, you know. And inside of that is everything that has to do with uh, adapting your environment, uh, care of the environment, uh, becoming great at what you do, uh, using the raw materials to build something. But there's also a cultural mandate in the New Testament, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. It says um, you've got a mandate for the culture of your mind. Mm. Uh, you're supposed to be all you can be for Jesus' sake. You're supposed to think on, on beautiful and noble and lofty things, uh, not the way you would just consume TV as a pastime, but with the purpose in mind that you're going to try to become more and more like Christ in the use of your mind. And your spirit. So that's where the fine arts uh, go for their mandate, you know, uh, more of a cultural thing. Okay. Still on the train of uh, you're doing this for students, a byproduct of your love for teaching and your love of students really helped you become a better professor. Now, I want to cite one example. Yeah, there's a feedback loop there. And so, like, I remember one of my memories of you in recent years was you teaching Macy McLean. Play the piano. Now, now Macy, for who's, those who are listening Macy's to us. Macy's awesome. Macy is. Um, Macy plays or lives without sight, physical sight. Yeah, she's so, blind from birth. Blind from birth. So you helped her hone her piano skills. And everyone from looking at, at that story says, oh, look what Dr. Clevenger is doing, helping Macy. But you took it in a different way. It helped you become a better professor. Explain that situation. It did. It's, it's, it's a little strange, but... Um, it worked backwards into my other teaching because I had to actually ask myself some fundamental questions about teaching with Macy because I realized with most of my other students, I've, I've taught one other student mm -hmm. who uh, was not cited, but it was decades ago, and I'm a better teacher now than I was then, so I don't know how much I really helped him. Yeah. Okay, but um, Macy was good enough and intense enough and motivated enough that she actually made me ask questions like, what is going on when I assume that a student can see the keyboard? I can see the keyboard, and so what do I take for granted as a pianist and as a teacher? But she knew she was helping me develop a technique that made sighted people pay more attention to the topography of the keyboard as if they had to feel for it. And in a lot of instances, we do. You'll be looking down at the bass, and they'll be playing something complex up in the treble. You can't watch both of those at the same time. So I learned about myself and about my students that in a lot of cases, we were playing one hand by radar mm. or praying. <laughs> Lord, help me. Bang. Hit that note. You know, when there's a way to know. So you can literally brush the keys as you move up. And you can feel groups of two, three, two, three. All that to say, I began having my own students play in their practice rooms with the lights off. I began having them sometimes close their eyes. I began having them envision the shape of the keyboard without its colors, without the blacks and whites. This actually helps you a lot when you go to perform because the lighting is different on the stage. So 
I was encouraging them, don't become dependent on the lighting in your practice room or the lighting in the piano studio. What if there were none? Can you still put your left hand out and drop it on an F-sharp octave near the bottom of the piano and know that you're going to be right? And it, it involved staying in touch with the shape of the thing, brushing it silently with your fingers the way Macy has to. Because you would think, oh, you're, you've been blind, and so you have a highly developed spatial sense. Uh, she told me she didn't. And she said, when my hand leaves the keyboard, I have no idea where I'm about to land. And I would challenge that. I'd say, surely you do. It's right here. And, and she would say, you're doing that with your eyes. We decided in the studio that we would make better friends with the shape of the keyboard. And uh, I think it gave some of the students uh, increased confidence about their ability to hit the right note when they barely can see it out of the corner of their eye. Macy couldn't see it at all. And she managed. So the question was, how do I learn what she does so I can teach others to do that? You know, the lesson was more like, trust what you know. And that's also biblical. Mm -hmm. You know certain things about the character of God, and that's the basis for your trust in him. It's not this blind belief in spite of everything you really know. And, and that's what a lot of people think faith is. But faith is because you know the character of God you know he's going to do what he said he did. Therefore, you step out where it looks like an abyss, you know, like Indiana Jones stepping onto the bridge. Right. Um, it may look like that to other people, but you know the builder. You know, right. So um, it taught me that trusting that I can hit a, a difficult passage of music totally depends on getting familiar with the fundamental moves. And that is not sight dependent. Macy could do it. And, man, the day she walked out on that stage in that student recital, mm. we even had to rehearse how do you find the piano when they opened the stage door because she had never done it. She'd never gone out on stage solo and performed in front of an audience. She loves to perform. But how do you find the piano? Once she touched the piano, she knew where she was. But how do you get there so you can take your bow? You know, um, and, and there are little tricks like hold on to the piano so you don't fall over, <laughs> right? Sure. Uh, holding on to the piano, she would know where the bench was. Find the bench with the back of your leg. Sit, get yourself squared away, and then it's just like you always play. It's the same keyboard. You know, the room acoustics are different. You can tell there are people out there. You can hear them cough or move or whatever. Right. She walked out there and she played this. She didn't just survive. It was gorgeous music. And, and so I knew that I'd had a part in that, and that was very gratifying, but she did it. Uh, and whether a person has sight or not, that's what I'm after, is that I teach them how, but they do it. You know, That's, that's part of your legacy in my mind at Cedarville, the, the Macy story, and then how you did that, similar things with other students. That's one. Two is you were hired as a music instructor or professor, but you came in. P and, piano guy, or so I uh, thought. Yeah, piano guy. <laughs> uh, the original piano guy. But uh, you came in and um, resurrected the arts program. People um, may not know that. And the fine the, art. The fine arts. Yeah, visual arts. Yeah, and yeah. you were the lead in, uh, instructor for the humanities. 
Yeah, I inherited the humanities program, and and what we did was recast it for uh, use as an online course. Uh, so we kind of changed the whole metaphor, and I wasn't really convinced of that at the beginning that we should do that. But Cedarville was in the middle of trying to create a robust online gen ed presence, and the big gen ed courses were going to be the problem. How do you take a gigantic gen ed course, and humanities was one, and convert it to online delivery? So it was the first of those. But in, on, the, on the fine arts program, so Cedarville didn't have that program when you came in 82. What steps did you take to, to resurrect a program that you thought in your heart was important at a Christian college? It's true enough. Um, the humanities, or the fine arts, whatever yeah, you want to right. call it, is a kind of a tripod uh, there, there's an art leg and a music leg and a drama leg okay. in the fine arts. And so our tripod was standing on two legs <laughs> when I got here. So again, I noticed that gap. We had so many things going. We were developing so many things, nursing, engineering. These are all things that were developed after I got here, and they were colossal. Uh, we had no grad school at that point. I mean, and so the Cedarville of today is so more full-orbed. It's so complex versus, you know, the little college in a cornfield that I came to teach at. All those things had to happen kind of one at a time, and it was just not the turn of the fine arts. We were doing okay, but there was no, there was no visual art program at all. I guess my contribution primarily was in hiring uh, Terry Chamberlain. Awesome guy. Terry and I were both students at Bob Jones University okay. decades ago. Uh, I had pinballed around college, uh, changed majors once, transferred twice, and so it took me six years to get through undergrad school. Terry and I are roughly the same age, but he was two years ahead of me when I met him because he had gone straight through school. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he was finishing a, a master's program in painting at the same time I was finishing my undergrad in uh, piano performance. At Bob Jones, our majors were both in the same building. So they had a fine arts building. He was upstairs and I was downstairs. Uh, I remembered just being totally impressed by his work, by his painting. It was loving. It was so rich to look at. But it was abstract. But it was biomorphic. It was based on things that God had created. It was based on animal and plant forms. And he had taken them and kind of explored with them. It was very creative stuff. Uh, and I remembered seeing his master's art show. And I remember, it was unusual, every piece in the show was sold. And then I learned that the people who had bought them were the faculty. And I realized they thought he was special. And, and at the time, I thought, whoever gets this guy is going to have a treasure. And uh, years later, here I am teaching at Cedarville, and I learned that Terry was teaching at Dayton Christian. And uh, all I had to do was ask him if he was ready to teach a college instead of high school. And he, he did that. And our whole art and design and creative and industrial design and all of that that we have now is due to him. Uh, my role was to be an encouraging administrator and uh, a fellow painter, because I do that too. And uh, we had a lot of... Uh, coffee conversations about what Cedarville might become in the area of the visual arts. So we sprouted that program out of the music department. 
It was first an art minor and then an art major and then eventually their own division, you know, or school. Um, and so for a while, we actually called ourselves the Department of Music and Art just to give it visibility. Now, uh, the names have all changed because they are the Department of Art, Design, and Theater, and the music side became the Department of Music and Worship, you know, which is the way it should have gone. Yeah, but uh, Terry's not only a great friend, but, uh, oh, he was a godsend. And what we have now is due directly to him. Let's move into another topic that uh, that really floats your boat, and that's uh, being a watercolorist. Oh, man. You, you loved painting. Uh, where did your love for art come from? <laughs> I can tell you the day. I was in the ninth grade. I was in study hall. I was bored out of my mind, and I was drawing pictures of airplanes coming straight at you. <laughs> and then I would turn the paper over and use the uh, pencil stop on my desk uh, to stretch the paper over that spot, and I would go, you know, and see if I had shot anybody down. You right. know, you can yeah. flame a plane, and then I was, this was my study hall. This is what I'm doing. And a man walked through the study hall, and a hand came down on my shoulder, and I thought I was headed for the principal's office or someplace. And he said, come with me. And, man, I'm telling you, it was like Jesus calling a disciple. He had, he had taught there for decades, and he had a few years to go until his retirement. And everybody knew that he was a painter, but his job was that he was an English teacher. He had been my father's English teacher. Oh, my goodness. He had been there for dogs years. All right. Um, and he had gone to the school and said, in my last few years, I'd like to teach art here. And they released him from teaching English. And for the four years of my high school, from ninth grade through the 12th, he taught us and then he retired. And he taught me my most fundamental understanding of art. And he was a watercolorist. So... I never did really learn the opaque technique, oil painting, acrylic painting. To me, it's a little backwards and, and foreign to use white paint. I don't use white paint. I leave the bare paper there because that's what he taught us. He taught us the old English transparent watercolor style, and that's what I use. I use no white, and I use no black. I mix everything to get black. I leave the bare paper to get white, and so it's a kind of an you know, if you want white, you just unpaint that spot, right? right. So it, it calls for a lot of forethought. Where are all the areas that are going to have to be light or white? I have to avoid them for a while. And you go into your painting, starting with the darks, and then you build it up, and then you finally quit uh, right before you ruin it <laughs> yeah. by painting over a white area. So he taught me how to do that. And then um, in undergrad school, it was one of my minors. I majored in piano performance, minored in painting and German language. So you've been painting for quite a while. Since I was uh, 14. 14. Yeah. For those listening to the podcast, Cedarville University has commissioned Dr. Clevenger uh, to paint four buildings, as I recall, in four different seasons. That's right. So, at four different times. At four different times. Right. What buildings are you painting? Um, the first building in the uh, series is uh, Founders Hall on a winter afternoon. That's the first one. The second one will be the uh, BTS, our Bible building, in the summer at sunrise, which presents the building more or less in silhouette, uh, but with the inside lit up 
all gold and a little bit of gold in the sky to match and the reflection then in the lake. So we're trying to pick each venue and put it in its best light, mm -hmm. uh, show it at its most exciting moment, perhaps during the day. So even an administration building has, has that beautiful moment in the afternoon mm -hmm. when it has snowed, you know. So um, I got some guidance from Dr. White, from General Reno on what they'd love to see. They gave me the buildings and we talked about which one would be most suitable in which season at which time of day. How long is it going to take you to complete this project? Um, they gave me until a year from Christmas. Okay. All right. But we should be done, I think, uh, by spring break this coming. Simply because now that the thing's in my head, I kind of have to do it. Uh, and the only reason I'm waiting that long is to see these buildings in those different seasons. Okay. So because it, I'm, I'm not an artist who kind of makes things up, I have to go there and be there. Ideally, I like to paint there. In this case, these are big pieces, and they'll be done in the studio. So why commission four paintings of campus buildings? Uh, I think part of it is to showcase there's a history here. And so one of the things we're doing in the buildings is putting in as some of the little figures that are in there that help scale the building and give it some humanity, uh, some of the historical teachers and administrators from over the years are, are being uh, composited into the buildings. So there's, we're kind of telling the story of Cedarville sure. using the buildings. Uh, and then we have the, the original building as one of them, Old right. Main, uh, and then uh, the new, some of the newer buildings since then. How meaningful is it to you to be commissioned to do this project? Well, I'm honored. Again, I still think of myself as a music guy. <laughs> so I'm always a little surprised when somebody says, will you paint this? But you're making music with your brush. Yes, I am. <laughs> we, we want it to be that. Sometimes a commission, because it didn't begin with your idea, if you're the artist, someone says, will you capture this thing I have in my mind? So that's, that's a little interesting, that process of teasing out from the client, what is it that you're after? So that part of the challenge is understanding what they see. And, and the other part of the challenge is keeping yourself fresh and interested in a big project when it wasn't your original idea anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, what I'm doing is in between the big paintings, uh, I take about a couple of weeks and I paint several smaller things just for me. And I go out and paint them get out in nature, uh, you know, see it, smell it, uh, get immersed in it, right. and kind of freshen my eye and my brush yeah. to come back to another big studio project. They, they have totally different feel to them. What is your favorite memory or most memorable event from your time here? Oh, my goodness. Well, so many crowd to the forefront when you say that. Um, I remember the day we opened the Dixon Ministry Center. That was my project. Literally, the faculty in the music department put me in as chair to get it done. And uh, I said, <laughs> I remember saying, guys, I may use up all my political capital trying to get this done. And Mike DeKirchy had the most classic comment. He said, so? <laughs> you know, they wanted that building. There was so much pent-up need for a fine arts. Uh, and to have it tied into ministry in the chapel was perfect. And... Um, I remember walking in that first day and looking around 
because I had a hard hat on, in boots. I'd been on that project. I knew where all the foundations were. I, you know, and I walked through and took my hard hat off and thought, I don't need this anymore, you know, and uh, what a place. So that was a great day. But, but on the micro scale, I think every time one of my students did their senior recital, it was their rite of passage. But we had done it together, and it was intense. I mean, there's nothing more intense for them than being painfully accountable to me once a week, just them and me in a room, no excuses. What have you done? You know, um, and so it was an apprenticeship. It's master to disciple you know, the passing of this knowledge. And they come in, they're good little gymnasts, you know, they know how to get around the keyboard, but they don't know anything about the poetry of it, you know, and, and the pathos of it. And what they really have no idea of is the amount of work it's going to be. And uh, when they take their final bow, I thought, that's what a moment. You know, it's not quite like giving birth, but there's something about it when you launch another Christian musician who gets it out into the world to be a testimony for Jesus. That was what I did. Yeah, you know, back in the 80s, there was this tremendous amount of emphasis in our evangelical churches on the finding and understanding your spiritual gift. When, When Paul clearly says you're supposed to cultivate them all, but everybody was so targeted, you know, what, which am I? You know, and I kind of know my gift. I'm a coach. Yeah, what the old King James called the gift of exhortation. And, and being a lecturer is different from being a coach because a coach gets down in the mud beside you and shows you how, all right? And, and I think every time I launched another one, it was like the pinnacle of my career for a moment. This is what I was made for. This, this is what lights me up like Christmas when I do it. And, and when it happens, you almost see this heaven open up and this shaft of light come down and hit that student. And the angels go, ah, you know, <laughs> okay. And you realize, I had a part of this. The Lord did it, but he did it through me. And that is cool. All right. And I, I live for those moments. So every one of them, that, that never gets to be assembly line. They're not alike. They're all unique. What we did with them was kind of the same thing over and over again. I used to joke about it. I would say, well, the year I finally retire will be the last time I ever show a clueless freshman how to play a Bach fugue. Mm. You know, as if I were looking forward to that. It was the first thing I missed, you know, was, was starting somebody clueless but talented on that road to being an expert. And, and, you know, like I said, I don't, I don't teach students. I make disciples. I've got disciples everywhere. I'll everywhere. I'll encourage you. Good stuff. Thank you for listening to Cedarville Stories, brought to you by Cedarville University. Be sure to rate and review Cedarville Stories on your favorite podcast provider and share with friends. You can also follow Cedarville University on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Logan Hayes for producing today's episode, Clem Boyd and Sarah Gump for marketing the podcast, and most importantly, you, the listener, for joining us today. Come back next week when we'll hear another inspiring Cedarville story for God's glory.